stand for the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. This morning's scripture is from Psalm 118, verses 19 through 29, which is on page 511 of the Blue Pew Bibles. Psalm 118, starting with verse 19. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. All right, let me pray for us once more. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your holy word that was just read. And Lord, we now beseech you that you might give us understanding, that by your spirit you might open up our eyes to see the truth, the goodness, the beauty of your word, that we might respond uh, rightly in faith and obedience. Lord, shape us according to your holy word. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Old church, today is Palm Sunday, which in the Christian calendar marks the start of Holy Week. Today we commemorate Jesus' triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. And we're told in the various gospel accounts that from all over Palestine, were gathered at the holy city, a large crowd there to celebrate the Passover feast. This included a large group from the region of Galilee, where Jesus had already developed the following. Now this event is recorded for us in all four gospel accounts, and similarly described in all four as a very boisterous welcome. It was the kind of welcome you would expect that a people would give to a visiting dignitary, especially to a king or queen. So Jesus was receiving a royal welcome. And that did not escape the attention of the religious leaders of the day. And they did not like it. So throughout that week, they openly challenged him. And they secretly plotted against him. And by that Friday, after midnight, they arrested Jesus while in a garden. They put him through a hasty religious trial in the middle of the night. And by noontime on that faithful Friday, they crucified him on a Roman cross. And so it's fair to say that all the joy, all the celebration that took place on that first Palm Sunday was rather premature. The people gave Jesus a royal welcome expecting a coronation service, thinking that he was about to receive his crown. What they didn't expect was the cross that comes before the crown. They were unprepared for the agony that precedes his royal ascension. 
And I think what would have probably helped them is if they had actually paid closer attention to the lyrics of the song that they were singing on that day. We're told that on the first Palm Sunday, the crowd around the city gates were shouting as Jesus drew near to them. But they weren't just shouting out random words and random phrases like, Go Jesus! Yay, Jesus! That's, they were actually shouting lyrics to a song. They were shouting out stanzas from Psalm 118. Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Those, my friends, <clears throat> are phrases pulled directly out of this morning's passage. So by Jesus' day, Psalm 118 was a song that carried within itself messianic overtones, meaning that the people of God assumed that this psalm was proclaiming the coming of Israel's Messiah. But had they paid, paid closer attention to the lyrics, Perhaps they would have realized their confusion as to what this messianic figure had come to do. And so friends, that's what we're going to try to do this morning, to pay close attention. This Palm Sunday, we're going to try to do something a little different. Instead of studying the typical Palm Sunday story out of you know, one of the gospel accounts, which you might hear on a typical Palm Sunday, what we're going to do is to study the song behind the story. I found, I found it interesting to learn that Psalm 118 has been sung in very different time periods on very different occasions for very different purposes. Now, I, I know that you're used to being told that good students of the Bible will try to understand the passage in its original context, on, uh, to focus on its original meaning to its original audience. And yes, that, that does go for most of the passages in Scripture. That is the approach you should take. But remember that psalms are songs. And songs can be sung on different occasions for different purposes. The same song can be used to celebrate or commemorate different things on different occasions. So for example, I'm sure, I, I'm sure, I'm sure you have heard Canon in D played at a wedding. Well, you just as well might hear it played at a funeral, a very different occasion. Or every New Year, you go to a party and someone's playing A Lang Syne. But you might have also heard that song played maybe at a farewell party or a graduation party. A different occasion, but the same song. And so that's the beauty of music. Songs have a range of meaning and they can be used differently on different occasions. And I would say that's true for even the psalms that we find in the book of Psalms. So as we study this psalm on this Palm Sunday, I'd like us to consider four different occasions in which this psalm has been sung and incorporated into the worship life of God's people. So if you want to follow along, look in your bulletin, you'll see an outline. And we're going to consider four occasions, Psalm 118 being sung first as the individual's song of thanksgiving. Secondly, the community's song of festive praise. Third, the people's song of messianic hope. And fourth, the church's song of gospel gratitude. So let's begin by exploring the original context behind the composition of Psalm 118. It's important though to note up front that no one really knows the exact origin of this psalm. But what we do know is that 
all of the individual psalms were written by various authors sometime before the final compilation of these 150 psalms within what we know as the book of psalms. And whoever edited them, whoever compiled these psalms together, didn't group them chronologically. It wasn't grouped by author. The organization is more thematic. It's more likely grouped based on how they were utilized within Israel's liturgical tradition. And so the most obvious way in which the Psalms are grouped is the way in which it's divided into five separate books, which many think was intended to reflect the five books of the Torah. And so even within those five books, and like in our Psalm, we're in book five, there are also different groupings, as we'll see in a minute. But having said all that, even though we can't know with certainty the original context of when Psalm 118 was composed, we can still infer some things from the text itself. And taken as a whole, we can infer that Psalm 118 was utilized as the individual's song of worship, a song of thanksgiving. And so it's often identified as one of the psalms of thanksgiving. And that's really based on the way that it ends, uh, begins and ends with the exact same verse, the exact same lyrics, which are all about thanking God, thanking the goodness of our God. So if you look at verse 1, so hopefully you have the text in front of you. Look at verse 1 and look at verse 29. It's sandwiched by this stanza. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Now, based on its content, the psalm could have been composed after some victory that Israel experienced in battle. I mean, there are references in here to being in distress, being surrounded by opposing nations. And so perhaps it was meant to be sung after the Lord had provided victory to the people. And now perhaps it's the king of Israel leading worshipers to the temple to offer up sacrifices of thanksgiving. And there, while they come and approach the gates of the temple, the king and the whole worshiping procession are greeted by the priests who pronounce blessings upon the whole procession. Verse 26, we bless you from the house of the Lord, from the temple of God. Now notice how most of the psalm is written in the first person singular. There's a lot of I's and me's. But then there is a sudden shift to the first person plural in verse 25. All that to say that this song was most likely adapted to be used by individual worshipers as a song of thanksgiving, but a song that they were supposed to sing in a corporate setting with other worshipers around them. Some theorize that perhaps like the Songs of Ascent, uh, those are uh, psalm, psalms that start in Psalm 120, they're labeled as Psalms of Ascent. Those psalms uh, were the kind of songs that the worshipers would sing as they ascended up towards the Temple Mount. And this could have been one of them, even though they're not, it's not grouped alongside them. And so as these worshipers are ascending the Temple Mount, as they are approaching the gates of the Temple Courts, you could imagine verse 19 just ringing in their ears. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. Now, in this particular case, the gates of righteousness would then be a reference to the temple gates. And verse 20 goes on to say, this is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. 
In this context, it likely had something to do with the presence of Levitical gatekeepers who would stand at the entrance of the temple gates. They were responsible to protect the holiness of the temple grounds. And so they would have been checking to make sure that every worshiper entering into the temple grounds was ceremonially clean. In that sense, they would have been considered righteous. Now, let's look at some of the other key images that you find here in the psalm and and, and think about how they would have been understood if, if it was being sung as an individual worshiper as a song of thanksgiving. So what about verse 22? There's a key phrase there, a key word. What about the reference to a cornerstone? Now that's an important image that gets repeated throughout Scripture. So let, let me just read verses 21 to 23. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Now, in this occasion, in this case, the cornerstone is likely referring to the individual worshiper, him or herself. The one singing this psalm is thankful that the Lord has heard his prayers for, for deliverance and has answered them, now becoming his salvation. And the builders in this context would just refer to any opponents in his life, any oppressors. The point is that he is thankful that no matter how much he is being rejected by others, he has not been cast aside by God. Instead, he has been given an essential role within the worshiping community. Just like how a cornerstone plays an essential role within the structure of the larger building, this worshiper is playing a role in corporate worship, and for that, he's grateful. Now, when it says there in verse 24, this very famous verse, this is the day the Lord has made, let us rejoice and be glad in it. Well, the day there is probably just referring to the day that the psalm is being sung, that particular day in the temple courts. And when it says in verse 26, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, we bless you from the house of the Lord. Well, that blessing is being bestowed to the one who meets the requirements of entry into the temple, into the house of the Lord. And in this case, to meet the requirements means that you come to the house of the Lord, not on the basis of your own merit, not in your own name, but you come in the name of the Lord. That is, you are trusting not in yourself, but in the goodness of of God. You are trusting in God to be your salvation, for God to be your righteousness. You're depending not on yourself, but you're depending on His steadfast love, which endures forever. That, my friends, is what it means to come to God in His name. So let me ask you a personal question. Have you come here this morning in your name? or in the name of the Lord? Are you standing on your own merits, on your own accomplishments, on the quality of your own performance? Well, perhaps that's why you feel ashamed. Perhaps that's why you don't feel worthy to be here this morning, to be singing songs of praise and thanksgiving. Perhaps that's why you feel like a hypocrite. But that's because you're trying to come here 
in your own inconsistent, unstable, contradictory name and reputation. Come instead in the name and reputation of the immutable, unchanging, unfailing Lord. Friends, it is better to take refuge in the Lord because His steadfast love endures forever, never changing, always the same. So, as a song, there's good reason to think that Psalm 118 was composed in light of some military victory, but then eventually it was adapted and incorporated into the liturgy of temple worship, sung as a song of thanksgiving. But friends, as Israel's liturgical tradition continued to grow, this psalm in time was eventually incorporated into the various festivals within Israel's annual calendar. Psalm 118 would then be sung as the community's song of festive praise. This is our second occasion. If you look in your, in your Bible, maybe if, if you have uh, study notes in there, or, or if you were to just pick up any commentary on this text, it will tell you that Psalm 118 was the last song in a larger section of Psalms known as the Egyptian Hallel. The Egyptian Hallel. Now, that was a, uh, a group of psalms that was sung together on great occasions within the Jewish calendar. Now, the word Hallel simply means praise. It's, it's where we get the word hallelujah. We were just singing that earlier. It means praise. And it's called Egyptian Hallel because it was tied to two major festivals in Israel's calendar, to the Passover and to the Festival of Tabernacles or Booths. And both of those um, holidays were originated from the story of the Exodus where God delivered his people out of Egypt. Therefore, they're called the Egyptian Hallel. Now, I, I've noted before that when the, uh, the Jews would celebrate the Passover meal, uh, also known as the Seder, uh, it, was, it had a very customary form that is celebrated and practiced even to this very day. It, there was a ritual that, that, that even today, Jewish families, if you were to visit their home during Seder, which is actually right now, they would be following this format. And so the meal would typically begin with the youngest child at the table asking the family, why is this night different from all other nights? Why, why are we eating this unleavened bread and, and this roasted lamb? And the head of the family would then retell the Exodus story and would lead the family in singing or reciting the Egyptian Hallel, starting with Psalms 113 and 114 at the beginning of the meal. And then they would eat the meal, and afterwards, uh, after the roasted lamb, the bitter herbs, the unleavened bread was eaten, after cups of wine uh, were drunk, the whole family would sing or they would recite together Psalms 115, all the way to Psalms 118. And so they would sing this psalm to close off the meal. Now, what's interesting is that if you were to pay attention to the gospel accounts, they tell us that after Jesus and his disciples ate their Passover meal at the, at the Last Supper, before they went out to the Mount of Olives, the text says that they sung a hymn together to close off the meal. Well, friends, now we know what they sang. 
Isn't it interesting that Jesus and his disciples sang Psalm 118 at the close of the Last Supper? Now, not only do we know that this psalm closely was associated with the Passover, we also know that it was tied to what's known as the Festival of Tabernacles, or Festival of Booths. That was an annual festival established for us in Leviticus 23. It was meant to commemorate Israel's deliverance out of Egypt and God's preservation of his people while they were in the wilderness. So part of the feast would involve building for you and your family a temporary wooden structure, a booth or a tabernacle that you and your family would literally live in for seven days. And the idea was, this is how you would identify with the wilderness generation. They had to live in it for 40 years. You just have to do it for, for seven days within the calendar year. Now, according to rabbinic tradition, we're told that the way that the Festival of Tabernacles was celebrated is that on days one to six, at some certain point in the celebration, the worshipers would parade around uh, uh, the altar. This is if they were in Jerusalem uh, back in the day. They would parade around the altar and they would recite, in particular, Psalm 118, verse 25. Look there. They would recite out loud, Save us, we pray, O Yahweh. O Yahweh, we pray, give us success. And as they were walking around in a circle, tradition also tells us that the worshipers would be waving branches either from a myrtle, willow, or palm tree. And then on the seventh day, and the last day of the feast, they would walk around the altar seven times, waving those branches, repeating verse 25 seven times as they went. Save us, we pray, O Yahweh. Oh, Yahweh, we pray, give us success. So within this context, within this particular occasion, verses 19 to 20 would still have those temple gates in view, but the cornerstone in this case would likely shift away from a focus on the individual worshiper and now onto Israel herself, Israel being the cornerstone. And that would be very fitting if these feasts were being celebrated in a post-exilic context. That, that means after the Babylonian exile. When the Jewish community would celebrate Passover or the Feast of Tabernacles and, and, and sing of the stone that the builders had rejected, that stone would be Israel herself and the builders would be all of the nations that oppressed her, Babylon being in particular. And to be lifted up now as a cornerstone would be understood by the worshipers as an allusion to Israel's return out of exile and now to the rebuilding of Jerusalem and its temple. So you could see how in a post-exilic context, this makes a lot of sense. Because if you consider also within the text the references to the oppression that they faced at the hands of the nations that was mentioned for us there in verses uh, 10 to, to 13, it's understood, if you look in verse 23, all of that oppression by the nations is understood to be the Lord's doing. This is the Lord's doing. And in verse 18, look at verse 18, right before our passage today, it's described for us as divine chastisement. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. So 
that fits the overall message that you would find in all of the prophetic books that have described the Babylonian exile as part of God's own will for Israel. It was for her discipline. It was divine chastisement. Now, that means that the day that the Lord has made that the worshiping community is supposed to be rejoicing in and being glad in would now probably refer to the overall improved state of affairs now that Israel is out of exile and they're, and they're back in their land. But friends, the key point to make is that even though they're out of exile, they're still not free. Israel may be out of exile, but they're still enslaved under Persian control, and then later on under the thumb of Greece, and eventually, of course, Rome. So when sung in this context, after the exile, this psalm begins to carry within itself these messianic overtones. In other words, the worshipers, they did look back, and, and they were grateful for past deliverance by God, but they still are looking forward and they're anticipating a coming deliverer who is going to free them from all of these rulers, all of this political oppression that they're facing. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That, for the people of God, became an expression of hope that one day there would be a Messiah who would come in God's name. To deliver them. In fact, the waving of the branches that's found in the ritual celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles was eventually associated with the welcoming of a messianic figure. So, for example, during the intertestamental period, that's the time period between the close of the Old and, and the, the start of the events of the New Testament, one of the Jewish leaders associated with Hanukkah, you guys are you know, you're familiar with Hanukkah, that's you know, a, a holiday that celebrates a Jewish victory, a particular uh, famous victory over their Greek oppressors. One of the characters, uh, one of the historical figures within the events of Hanukkah was a military leader named Simon Maccabeus. And after he had helped restore Jerusalem uh, to gain back control, Simon and his soldiers are described as being welcomed into the city with, quote, praise and palm branches. Now, this comes from um, one of the historical books uh, within, the, within um, what's known as the Apocrypha out of 1 Maccabees. But it's describing this event of Simon being welcomed in with praise and palm branches. And so the whole point is, is that by New Testament times, the singing of Psalm 118 and the waving of palm branches carried within itself these strong messianic overtones. They sent clear signals that anyone would have picked up, even if you didn't outright say, hey, that's the Messiah right there. So just think about, for example, imagine if you were just, you were blind and you were suddenly transported into a large, noisy crowd. You have no idea where you are. You have no idea what's happening around you. But then suddenly, the noisy crowd goes quiet, and you hear the Star Spangled Banner being played. And immediately, you know exactly where you are and what's happening. They're about to play ball. Or, for example, what, what, same thing, but let's say you were deaf, and you were dropped into a crowd, and 
You can't hear anything. You don't know what anyone's doing. But then suddenly everyone just stops what they're doing. They all stand up and they put their right hand over their heart. And immediately you know the same thing. You know what's about to happen. So I'd argue that that's what was going on in the gospel accounts on Palm Sunday. I would argue that the welcome that Jesus received by the song that was being sung, by the actions being taken, they sent a clear signal that people viewed him as the Messiah without even having to say it outright. Their song and their actions spoke volumes. And so this leads to our third point to the third occasion where Psalm 118 was sung. Let's consider Matthew's particular account of this event found in Matthew 21. And we're going to see how Psalm 118 has become the people's song of messianic hope. So let me just read to you. If you want to turn there, uh, look in Matthew chapter 21. And starting in verse 7, uh, I'm going to read to us. Now this is after the disciples bring to Jesus a donkey and her colt. And he rides the colt into Jerusalem, and he's welcomed with palm branches. Uh, palm branches specifically mentioned for us in John's account in John 12. But this is Matthew 21, verse 7. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting... Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So compared to the original context of Psalm 118, uh, that being a song of thankful praise, by Jesus' day, the people saw this messianic figure who comes in the name of the Lord, not just as a worshiper leading God's people in praise. They saw him now as more of a conquering king leading God's people in deliverance over their enemies. So the gates of verses 19 to 20 in our psalm are now more in reference, not to the temple gates, but to the gates of the city of Jerusalem itself. And the cornerstone, it is still being viewed as Israel, but now the builders are more specifically viewed as the Roman occupiers. And the day that the Lord has made is, of course, the hope for day of deliverance from Roman rule. And as we've already seen that phrase, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, was treated as messianic, which explains why in Matthew 21 verse 9, they call Jesus the son of David. They added that to the song. Because the son of David is a very clear messianic term. The son of David was understood as the hope for king who would one day come to reestablish David's forever throne. And so when they shout out, Hosanna to the son of David, you have to understand, my friends, that they're calling out for political salvation. That word Hosanna, in case you're not aware, is actually a transliteration from the Hebrew into the Greek, carried on over to us in English. And so we, we sing Hosanna in our worship songs, and we may not even know exactly what we mean. We know it's something that Christians sing, right? Uh, but it means, literally, out of verse 25, it means, save us, we pray. That's where the word Hosanna comes from. 
Verse 25, save us, we pray, O Yahweh. Hosanna, O Yahweh. That's another way you could translate it. Well, in Matthew 21, verse 9, when the crowd shouts out Hosanna, they're hoping for deliverance from their oppressors. They're hoping for political salvation. They're hopeful that Jesus will lead them, just like Simon Maccabeus did, to overthrow Roman rule and win back Jerusalem for God's people. Now, I, I know it's very easy for us to look down on those in the crowd that day for their inability to see who Jesus really is. Like, oh man, you guys are just so focused on a political salvation and political ruler. You guys don't see the big picture? Well, I think we need to be a bit more humble as we reflect on the crowd that day and to try to sympathize with what they must have been going through. They were dealing with a frustration and discontentment that I actually think all of us can relate to. You know, right now we are living in a day and age where many people are very suspicious of authority. And in many cases, they have a right to be. People have grown pessimistic towards leaders. Whether you're talking about leaders in the church who have had great moral failures, you're talking about leaders in politics who are just, you know, filled with scandals, you're talking about just leaders in the culture at large, celebrities, athletes. But even with our growing skepticism towards authorities and towards leaders, it's not like most people are pining for anarchy. I mean, most people don't want to throw off all authority. They just want good authority. We want leaders that we can trust. We, 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 we want leaders who would be willing to listen, willing to, and we would be willing to listen to them, and we would be willing to trust them and to follow them if, if there was a good leader in place if there was a rightful authority in the rightful seat. In other words, if there was a good king on his throne. And so I think that was the same sense and longing that was found in the hearts of the people that day that, that were surrounding the gates of Jerusalem. They, they were filled with discontentment and a longing for a good king. And so I think we can sympathize with them because I think many of us can relate to that discontentment and that longing for good leaders and good authority in our world. But we can also see how they misunderstood the Messiah's mission. They assumed that he was going to Jerusalem to take up his crown. They had no idea he was actually there to take up his cross. What they did not understand that at the time is that Rome was not their biggest problem. The Roman authorities were not their biggest oppressors. That title... That title belonged to sin. Human sinfulness was actually their real problem. Their enslavement to foreign rulers paled in comparison to their enslavement to sin. And so a good king ruling over bad people would only be a partial solution. It literally fails to get to the heart of the problem. Such a king would spend his entire rule merely trying to restrain evil and to manage sin. God, my friends, God has a much better redemptive plan in mind. He envisions a good king ruling over good people, made good from the inside out. Of course, by the atonement 
of their sins and the empowerment that comes by the Holy Spirit. That's God's plan. And that's why Jesus entered Jerusalem ready to take up his cross before he receives his crown. Now that leads, of course, to our final point and to the fourth occasion for singing Psalm 118. And that, of course, would be in the context like this, within the church's worship of our Lord out of gratitude for his goodness and grace. Psalm 118 should be on our lips as the church's song of gospel gratitude. So what this means is that Christians, from our perspective, on this side of the cross, are justified in reading Psalm 118 with a Christ-centered lens. We should read it Christologically. In fact, Psalm 118 is one of the most frequently quoted Old Testament texts that you're going to find in the New Testament because the New Testament authors saw the gospel connections in this psalm. They recognized the various ways in which this psalm foreshadowed Christ and what he came to do. I mean, friends, I'm, I'm still fascinated by the fact that Jesus and his disciples sung Psalm 118 to conclude their Passover meal. Because notice how the hem in verse 27, look there in verse 27, how it has instructions there to bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. Well, little did the disciples know that in just a few short hours, they would see their master bound and offered up on a cross as a sacrifice for the atonement of sins. In previous occasions, the rejected cornerstone was identified with either the individual worshiper or corporate Israel, but now when the church reads this psalm, we recognize Jesus as the true Israel. He was rejected by man, but approved by God. In the gospel accounts, we, we see that later in the week, Jesus goes on to reference Psalm 118 one more time. It's after he told what's known as the parable of the tenants, where the, uh, these tenants are put in charge of their master's vineyard, and one day the master's son is sent to go collect some of the fruit, but not only do they re the tenants reject the son, they end up killing him. And so in Matthew 21, verse 42, Jesus turns to all the chief priests and Pharisees, and he says to them, quote, Have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. So it's pretty obvious that Jesus is the rejected cornerstone and the religious leaders of his day are the builders that are in this psalm or the tenants that are in the parable. And they go on to prove that by arresting Jesus on Good Friday, trumping up false charges, bringing him before Roman authorities, calling for his death. But again, just like with the exile, this is the Lord's doing. He, he works in mysterious ways. No one would have predicted that he would defeat sin by putting it on the back of his sinless son. 
No one would have guessed that he would defeat Satan by allowing the accuser to condemn his beloved son. And no one thought that he would defeat death by, by willingly allowing his son to die for us and for our salvation. And of course, Jesus didn't stay dead. On the third day, he arose, and after 40 days on earth, appearing to his disciples, teaching them, giving his final words, he ascended on high back to the Father. And there, at the gates of the heavenly Jerusalem, the risen Lord received a true hero's welcome. From all the hosts of heaven, I'm sure he heard the words sung again, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And to this day, he sits on his rightful throne, ruling over his people, those who have, been turned from, who have turned from their sins, who have trusted in his name, those who are being changed by the Spirit into good people from the inside out, being conformed into the image of our King. And now, of course, we await for his second coming, when he comes to make all things new, when he comes to bring heaven down to earth. Church, that is our blessed hope. And so friends, I ask you, do you share in this gospel hope? Who is Jesus to you? Is he just a religious figure that you grew up with, always hearing about, always believing existed? But is he just the God of your parents? Is he just the God of your spouse? The God you think could or could not be true, and if he is true, you're hope, hoping that maybe he'll give you some credit for at least going to church, being around Christians. But that's not how it works. God doesn't just want an hour or two of your time over the weekends. He wants your heart because he loves you with all of his heart. And he gave his son to die for you so that you might live for him. So would you give him your heart today? I leave you with that question. Father, we thank you for this text, this song that helps us to better understand the events of Palm Sunday, of what we are celebrating this morning. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see how Jesus is clearly in this song how it's all about him and it's all about his sacrifice for us. May you give us all faith to believe. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.